probiotics. Oh, this again, 50 million active per milliliter. Per milliliter. That's a yeah. lot. Okay. Um, that's in the home spray. And you're going to get the exclusive, not available anywhere else, the Pacifica Radio exclusive, the dish soap. Think about those nasty sponges. No more. Not going to have that. The laundry detergent and the ebook. It's all for a $180 pledge. 516-620-3602. Folks, the lines are going crazy. We thank you so much. I want to thank, of course, Karis Kudavan, founder and CEO of Protect. All right. I want to thank you so very much. Please keep those calls coming. Uh, be patient. We're going to try and answer as many as we can. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for Driving Forces coming up. It's 5 p.m. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live everywhere at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and I'm sitting in today for the wonderful Jeff Simmons. Thanks so much for joining me. It's always great for me to be here on WBAI. I actually helped get Driving Forces started with Jeff. He's taking a much-deserved short little break, um, and uh, I'm happy to be here with you today. I've also appeared with Jeff and with David Brand on City Watch, another great WBAI program. And I hope you had a chance to listen to uh, any of the episodes of New York in Crisis. That's an interview series that I did about how New Yorkers from many walks of life have been dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. And that's available, of course, on WBAI.org. So today here on Driving Forces, we're going to be focusing on a subject that's very timely and very near and dear to my heart as a reporter and has been for a very long time. That is voting. And I'm with you today in part because I just co-wrote an ebook called Is This Any Way to Vote? Vulnerable Voting Machines and the Mysterious Industry Behind Them. And you can get a copy of that book by going to Amazon or by visiting our publisher, Who What Why, at whowhatwhy.org. They're a great independent investigative news site that really gets into a lot of the same kinds of issues that we talk about here on WBAI. Which brings me to a point, uh, before we get into our program, and I am very excited to have you with me, um, we rely on you for our support here at WBAI. And that's why I'd like to ask you, if you possibly can, to take a moment to help us keep bringing you free speech, non-commercial programming. You know, in these times, we really need your help to stay on the air and keep giving you these important discussions about news, politics, and culture. So if you would, please consider making a donation today. All you have to do is go to WBAI.org. You can also send a check to WBAI at 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. So you can help keep listener-supported radio alive. You can become a WBAI buddy in the name of your favorite program. It's easy. It just takes a minute. What that is, is that's our recurring donor program where you can give monthly support in any amount, even $10 a month, really helps us out. Just takes a minute. You can check it out. Go to WBAI.org. Or again, you can mail us 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. So right now we'd like to like get into what this show is really about, the greatest pillar of, of our democracy, which is voting. As you know, voting's well underway ahead of Election Day, which is November 3rd. We have people voting early in person. We also have people voting in lots of different ways by mail. And that's one of the things that we tackle in our new ebook, which I mentioned earlier on. And it's called, Is This Any Way to Vote? Vulnerable Voting Machines and the Mysterious Industry Behind Them. And I couldn't have done this work without my great co-author, Gabriella Novello of Who, What, Why. And she's joining me now. So, Gabriella, thanks for being here today and welcome to WBAI. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. So maybe just to, to start, just give us a little bit of a thumbnail about you and the kind of work that you do when it comes to writing about voting and writing about elections. Sure. So I cover election integrity with Who, What, Why and have done so for a little over a year now. And what that includes is uh, basically everything from the state of election equipment to what lawmakers at the state and federal level are doing with respect to voting rights. 
And, you know, this is something that I thought we could have kind of a you know, fun discussion about, which is like, why do we write the book? Who, who do we write this book for? Right. And what are we kind of hoping that people will take away from it? So, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that now that it's done, right? Yeah, well, I would say that the, uh, the most important reason for writing this book is, uh, you know, when we talk about elections and voting in the United States, it's often done through the lens of the horse race itself, you know, rather than how we actually vote. So, we wanted to, you know, pull back the curtains and explain exactly, you know, everything from what kind of equipment is used, who makes this equipment, um, the vulnerabilities that come with certain voting systems, according to various election experts, and the changing tide, of course, toward mail-in voting amid the coronavirus pandemic. You know, we really wanted to educate voters on the evolution, current context, the controversies and politics of voting machines, and, you know, what folks should take away from this ebook, I hope, is that there are several aspects of the voting process that still deserve more scrutiny. And, you know, other reporters that cover this area, they can use our ebook as a guiding point, as a, a primary resource. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about there are a growing number of people now who are sort of getting into covering voting uh, or covering voting and the mechanics of elections and the security of elections, maybe in a different way than they've voted in the past. But there is sort of this core group of people like you and me, and I can think of a bunch of other ones that I really admire and respect, who really focus on the nitty gritty of what it takes to put together and to tabulate and to report the results of an election. And it's kind of complicated, you know. I remember, uh, you know, have have sat in my day many a time uh, watching petition challenges or looking at how they pull together the actual votes, this sort of really complicated method of pulling numbers off the machines and uh, getting them into a centralized place and getting that information out. And, you know, there are sort of vulnerabilities along the way. Um one of the things that we talk about quite a bit in the book is that the voting machine industry is not really as sort of open and transparent and familiar to people as other industries. You know, we've talked about this. You might know who made your computer that you might be listening to this program on if you're streaming live, or you know who made your sneakers, or you know who made the paint that you use in your apartment. But how many people know who makes their voting machines and how they got there? So that's that's something that we talk about in the book, but in your case, you talked a lot about the real uh, nuts and bolts, literally and figuratively, of how voting right. machines work and where they might be vulnerable. So I'm just wondering if you have some observations about, um, you know, where our machines are vulnerable and, and what could be done to make them more secure. So, I mean, we unpack a lot of information throughout the book, um, everything from the hardware of flaws and vulnerabilities and, you know, how various actors could hack a system if they really wanted to. Um, but I would say that what concerns me the most is that there's still a lot that we don't know. Uh, and we do not know a lot because uh, according to some of the experts we spoke with, and, and you kind of mentioned this, it's not um, as diverse of, of market share, um, you know, it's difficult to get information about certain equipment from the manufacturers. They, they hold their trade secrets very close to the chest. So that's what gives me the most pause at the Yeah, time. and I should, I should, not to interrupt, but I should point out for those of you who are listening is that there are basically three main companies that actually make voting machines. Uh, you have uh, ESNS, uh, Dominion, and Heart InterCivic. And we should point out that we approached all these companies to talk about their products and talk about their practices and talk about security, and none of them wanted to cooperate with the reporting. Now, you can take away from that what you will, but we did make a good faith effort to include these machine makers who vastly, vastly dominate all the machines that are used for voting by millions and millions of people all over this country. They didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, once again, if they ever do want to, you know, give us some time to, to talk about their equipment, um, you know, we're always willing and happy to speak with them and, and get their side and, and how they view the safety and security of of their equipment. Um, and, you know, we talk about all these vulnerabilities in our voting systems that we discovered, but at the same time, there is, there is some hope. Um, there are many states that have introduced things like 
risk-limiting audits, um, which is basically a statistical analysis, uh, analysis of ballots, and that's intended to catch any errors or, or faults in the voting machines. Um, and in other states, there have been processes established to recount ballots by hand if necessary to ensure an accurate count, even in the event that one of these machines fail. Yeah, and there are certain, you know, there are certain laws uncovering New York, for example, I remember writing many times about uh, statistical uh, sort of benchmarks that would trigger, say, an automatic recount, like if the margin of victory was extremely small or other places, as you say, have uh, provisions for um, for recount depending on different guidelines. Um, there are, you know, there are ways in some places to track your ballot. There are different methods of voting. Um, one thing I did want to mention and, and ask you to talk about is something that you've reported on for quite a long time, which is um, real, real serious problems with voting in places like Georgia, where people have been, um, you know, talking a lot about being disenfranchised and um, not just by long lines, but in terms of the closure of polling places, other restrictions, you know, can you talk a little bit about places like Georgia where, um, you know, there are people who want to participate in the process, but they run into a lot of problems? Yeah, well, Georgia is interesting, especially because they uh, the state uses uh, what are called ballot marking devices and they're electronic based voting machines that have, um, you know, an uh, auditable paper trail. Um, They print out a paper ballot that's eventually scanned into another machine to count the vote after you mark your choice on a touchscreen. But uh, just this past week, there was a federal court ruling that found major security flaws with these voting machines. And, you know, the judge criticized the state and the manufacturer, but because it was too close to the election itself, um, you know, they denied a request to force hand-marked paper ballots to be used. And Um, You know, there's kind of been a long ongoing battle over, you know, using these kinds of voting machines versus the handmarked paper ballots, because many proponents of the ballots, the paper ballots, they say you can't hack a piece of paper and it's a much more secure way of voting. Um, You know, we also hear about uh, what are called electronic poll books. They're, you know, basically tablet like machines that are used at polling places to check voters in, make the process, you know, intended to make the process quicker. But as we discussed in our book, you know, uh, there were hackers that discovered you could bypass the administrative settings on those tablets and turn them into first-person video games if you really wanted to. So um, that's just one example of of the vulnerabilities in, in the election equipment that's used in a state like Georgia. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting in your reporting was when you were talking about how voting machines are built, you mentioned that sometimes uh, even if uh, some of them or parts of them are, quote unquote, made in the USA, they still can include components from places like China or places, other places that might be considered sort of politically hostile to the United States. And sometimes information can end up on those machines that doesn't really belong there. Can you talk about that a little? Yes. Yeah, so one thing that we uh, discussed briefly in our book is that, uh, as, as you said, a lot of the, if not most of the uh, election equipment is put together in the United States, but the actual manufacturing creating these equ- uh, equipment are made overseas. Uh, in China, for example, uh, election equipment was made in China, brought to the United States, and it was found out to have uh, MP3 files in Chinese, and and obviously, you know, you shouldn't have things in a voting machine that 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 shouldn't be in a voting machine. Um, you know, there that's just one example that that we were able to discover uh, and talk about in our book. One of the things that I'm going to talk about also, I think, a little bit later in the program with some of our other guests, but, you know, in terms of the actual experience of voting, is there anything that you would sort of look at uh, as being particularly different during a pandemic about either uh, voting by mail or voting in person, you know, making sure that you're safe, but at the same time, making sure your vote is counted? Because, again, we're already seeing a lot of confusion about misprinted ballots, uh, long lines at physical polling places, uh, confusion about who is entitled to vote uh, with or without an excuse, that kind of thing. I mean, do you think that relative to the scale of 
how much voting we are already seeing before election day. Do you think things are kind of going well or are there things that you're seeing that, that are worrying to you? Well, um, I'm keeping an eye, a uh, close eye on, on, you know, the more so on the growing number of lawsuits regarding absentee ballot processing rather than, um, you know, of course, election officials, they are working on this year round. They're thinking about and focusing on administering elections to the best of their ability all year when most voters only think about elections, you know, six, eight weeks before an election itself. Um, so I, I am relatively confident in election officials' ability to, if they make any mistakes, to quickly correct them. We saw in, uh, in Pennsylvania recently, um, there were, now this is not about ballots being sent out uh, incorrectly, this is about ballots being incorrectly discarded. There were uh, a few ballots, military voter ballots, that were incorrectly discarded, but within two days, officials were able to quickly identify where those ballots were, uh, you know, contact all the affected voters, and make sure that those ballots were counted. They contacted, um, you know, the proper authorities to get it done. So I, I have some hope that the officials that, you know, in states where ballots were mailed out incorrectly, that it will be uh, addressed and corrected within a reasonable period of time to make sure any impacted voter, um, you know, is, is able to vote and have their vote counted. But like I said, I'm more so concerned on the lawsuits surrounding whether ballots coming in by mail and that weren't postmarked can be counted, whether a ballot received, you know, a few days after Election Day but postmarked before, if those can be accepted. And then, of course, we've got to worry about the witness and notary signatures and if that's missing on a ballot, should it disqualify that ballot? You know, we've also got the issue of ballot drop boxes. So that's when it comes to absentee voting, that's what I'm going to be keeping a close eye on this year. Um, but then, of course, we're still going to have many voters going to a polling place in person on Election Day. And, you know, I'm going to be watching to see whether election officials prepared enough for that because they had to prepare for the historic surge in absentee voting as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And as you already know, you know, in California, there were unofficial drop boxes placed throughout the state. It's still unclear to me how many ballots were placed in those unofficial drop boxes, what will happen to those ballots if there were any. So that's kind of my mindset going into Election Day or election season, because as we know, it's it's highly unlikely at this point that we will have a, a clear winner at the end of election night. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I've been thinking about a lot and actually I've been writing about it too. Uh, I just did a piece for Neiman Reports about uh, specific to how cable uh, cable television news is going to cover that. But what happens if we sort of get up to this moment where traditionally we are, we have all our eyes, you know, on the screen and we're expecting there to be a big race call or a winner will be declared and victory speech, concession speech. And that doesn't happen. You know, we just have to wait. I mean, what are you as a reporter? How are you kind of feeling about the fact that this could very, very well uh, take longer than it usually does? So an editor once told me that elections are not drive through restaurants. You know, you can't just pick <laughs> what you want and then have a result at the end when you get to that final window um, right before you head off and go home. So, I mean, patience is going to be key. Uh, you, voters are just going to have to give election officials some time to actually process every ballot that's been cast. Um, there are some states that are allowed to start processing ballots before Election Day, so hopefully with, you know, a little sooner than other states will get results. But it it is likely that you won't know who won the 2020 election until you're sitting around the table Thanksgiving night. Um, it's it's possible. And, you know, election officials across the country are, are asking voters to just give them patience. Gabriella Novella, how can people find out more about you and about your reporting? Yeah, so if you want to reach me on social media, it's at NovelloGab. And if you want to pick up a copy of Is This Any Way to Vote, you can head over to Amazon or visit whowhatwhy.org for more information. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Driving Forces. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So you are listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and we're streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. I'm sitting in today here for your usual host, the great Jeff Simmons, taking a break. But we were talking about voting, um, voting, obviously, at the, uh, the top of everyone's mind right now. And we have a new book out that we wrote together, Gabriella and I, and it is called, Is This Any Way to Vote? Vulnerable Voting Machines and the Mysterious Industry Behind Them. And as she said, you can get that on Amazon or you can get it right from whowhatwhy.org. So, you know, just to take a moment here, uh, you know, that's kind of a good point that Gabriella, who I worked with on this very long, complicated, but rewarding project, you know, She's the kind of person that we really like to have here on the program and that we like to have across our programs on WBAI. And uh, the thing is that to keep bringing you this kind of programming, we need your help. So if you care about the issues that really matter, like voting, and you want to hear the real story from real experts, please consider helping us out. Please help us continue broadcasting by making a donation today. You can go to WBAI.org and you just click ways to donate. It'll be at the top of your screen and you can make a one-time donation or, or something that I did and something I know Jeff did. We can become a WBAI buddy and a BAI buddy means you make a recurring donation of any amount that you like. You can make it in the name of a favorite show uh, like driving forces. And uh, as a special bonus, uh, for a limited time at WBAI, we are actually trying to help you stay smart and stay safe. And we are offering, um, with your gift for your continuing support, we have a BAI face mask. So you can uh, protect yourself from COVID-19 and uh, show your support for commercial free news, music, public affairs programming. So just go to WBAI.org to make your donation, or you can mail us your gift, 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, New New York, 11217, that's WBAI.org, or you can mail us at 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. And we appreciate every donation we receive, and it goes towards bringing you great programming about news, politics, culture, the arts. So help us out, become a WBAI buddy today. Information is power. You can help us power the station and keep us uh, uh, on the air with the diverse programming that we have brought to you for more than 60 years. So thank you for your support. We do appreciate it. You're listening to Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here on WBAI. And our next guest is somebody I'm very happy to welcome to the program. Her name is Tammy Patrick, and she is one of the people that we spoke to for our new ebook, uh, Is This Any Way to Vote? She's a senior advisor at Democracy Fund, and she focuses there on fostering a voter-centric election system and helping election officials who run uh, the operations on Election Day before and beyond with more tools and information to serve the public and do their jobs. Uh, in 2013, President Obama chose Tammy to serve on the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. She's also been a federal compliance officer for the Maricopa County Elections Department. So, Tammy, great to have you here on Driving Forces. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you again. Absolutely. So before we get into it, because I'm excited to ask you some questions, maybe just tell people a little bit more about what you do and, you know, your experience with elections, because you have great experience. Sure, I'll try and keep it brief. But um, in addition to the things that you mentioned, as a local election official um, in Arizona, we were the, you know, and continue to be, they continue to be the largest um, county in Arizona. So Maricopa County, we had around 2 million registered voters. And my job as the federal compliance officer was to make sure that the um, county upheld all the federal laws to make sure that we had language services available for voters who needed it, say, in Spanish or in an unwritten uh, language of the Tohono O'odham, which is the Native American population there in the county. Um, I embossed ballots into Braille um, for many of our, our voters um, who were blind and wanted Braille ballots. I oversaw um, some of the, the issues around the country um, and helped weigh in on the writing of the voluntary voting system guidelines, um, and as well as making sure that, that voters that have many challenges in um, participating in the franchise, we were able to try and, and break down some of those barriers. So whether it's time and distance for voters who are around the globe, our military and overseas voters, or local voters that have challenges in, um, in getting to a polling place 
or having uh, technology that they can interact with effectively. That was part of my job at the local level. Um, after the appointment by President Obama, I, I moved out to the Washington, D.C. area. I live in, in Maryland now and continue my efforts working with nonprofits and state and local election officials to make sure we have tools and technology and, um, and policies in place to really focus on what voters need in order to effectively participate so that the ballots are counted as cast. So when I spoke to you for the book that we did for Who, What, Why, uh, one of the things that you and I talked about, and I was hoping we could share a little bit of that on the air today, is that, you know, you talked about uh, when we had the uh, the Help America Vote Act came in, a lot of places across the country were able to invest in some form of new equipment, new technology. But after that, you know, maybe there was sort of a, a long time, like kind of a fallow period where uh, there wasn't much going on in terms of people making those uh, really large purchases. So I'm just wondering, you know, can you talk a little bit about sort of the cyclical nature of buying this equipment and what it means for how competitive the industry actually is? It really is an odd market. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anyone who would want to um, engage in this market because of the way that it's set up. So up until 2000, um, it was absolutely the case that across our country, um, on occasion, local and state election officials would receive some amount of funding by their state legislatures or their local, um, you know, appropriators to be able to invest in the election equipment that's used to count votes. Um, so whether it was optical scan equipment in the 90s um, or what have you. But all across the country, there were a lot of places still using punch cards. And um, and what we saw after the 2000 election was this move away from punch cards, so the elimination of the ability to use them in federal elections, and a turn towards technology to try and solve some of the issues around voter intent. So we didn't have pregnant and dippled, dippled, dimpled <laughs> chads, <laughs> hanging chads anymore. Um, instead, we have a question of, you know, which oval did the voter mean to fill in um, and, and that sort of thing. So what happened up until 2000 is that because the market was dispersed across the country and on any given year, you might have a, a county or a city or a state that was buying equipment, those vendors that were supplying the equipment had an ongoing kind of, albeit small, revenue stream. But with the influx of the Help America Vote dollars and the requirement to replace all voting equipment within a very short period of time, Every election office in the country, most for the most part, a large percentage of them, completely changed the type of equipment that they were using or bought new equipment. So for a service provider, if you think about, um, you know, any service or product that you provide, if all of a sudden your customer base only bought and they all bought at the same time within about a two-year period and then they don't buy again for another decade – that can be a very um, dramatic impact on not only the market, but on your company. So after that happened, we did see um, some shifting and some changing in who the players were in the production of our voting systems and our voting equipment. Um, and so that really has been a big change. Um, now, in the last couple of years, we've seen some additional individuals and some additional ideas around how our votes are counted and how they are cast. In the onset of the use of commercial off-the-shelf products in order to, um, to use the hardware from, you know, a basic laptop or a basic tablet as a marking device or a basic scanning machine or printer um, that you could buy at any, you know, any off-the-shelf commercial off-the-shelf product with proprietary software. But in some cases, we are seeing service providers that are looking for um, providing open source software as well. So there's been a real change in the last um, the last 20 years in how our voting system is not only certified because that was another um, real shift in the after the Help America Vote Act. Mm -hmm. Up until that time, so up until just 20 years ago, we didn't really have any um, set federal standards for what our voting systems should adhere to. And even now, you may have mentioned what, or may have noticed when I mentioned it, they're voluntary voting system standards. 
So many right. states have um, have adopted them and said these these are the standards we need to adhere to, but not everyone has, and that has been like a real you know a real shift as well in um, how do the standards get written, who helps write them, how do they get approved through the public process, and then who's picking them up and implementing them and making them a requirement when they do turn to purchasing new equipment. So one of the things it's you know it's it's been kind of interesting it's been kind of a there's been a, a an upside and a downside of having written uh, an ebook about the voting machine industry when we are now seeing of course due to the pandemic so much more voting by mail but I still think it's relevant because people definitely still want to vote uh, in person in many cases and uh, also uh, all these votes are not tabulated by hand machines are used to tabulate them. So sort of considering everything that's going on with problems that you might usually expect with voting machines, uh, with the uh, the volume of people voting by mail, and then, of course, potentially looking at a big turnout on Election Day, you know, are you expecting kind of snags on Election Day or on Election Night, either with handling actual voting itself or with figuring out who won and, and uh, news being able to sort of... Um, to confidently figure out uh, how to report that? And those are all great questions. One of the things I think that it's important for your listeners to, to know is that every state in this country has had somebody voting by mail in their state in elections for years. It's just mm-hmm. a question of the volume of voters that they've had. So even in places where they traditionally have had, you know, five or 6% of their electorate voted absentee or voted by mail. So someplace like New York had very few voters that voted by mail. They had policies, procedures, and laws in place on how to process those ballots. Now, many of the states that have a lot of voters that vote by mail have modified their policies to help support the processing of the ballots, making sure that um, voters have an opportunity to cure any issues that might arise if they say one of the big reasons is if they forget to sign Um, the affidavit that goes along with the ballot, um, giving them an opportunity to make sure they get it signed and can have their ballot be counted. So many states that have a lot of vote by mail or a lot of absentee voting have policies in place and are doing well in this moment. Other states that are scaling up learned some lessons in the primary of some hiccups and some issues that that they didn't foresee and have safeguarded against and, and kind of shored up those problems for the general. And that's not to say that we won't see some challenges and some issues around the country. Those types of things always happen because elections are run by people and um, and people can make mistakes. But we definitely know that in this moment, there are more states and jurisdictions that are using ballot tracking through the mail stream. More jurisdictions and states are doing robust post-election audits. Um, more states and jurisdictions are... Um, expanding the options that voters have in order to make a safe and healthy choice in how they want to vote. But it is the case that you mentioned reporting of the results on election night. In every election, um, it has never been the case that we truly know a winner on election night. The official results often days or weeks until later, you know, after the fact. But Mm -hmm. this is one of those times where um, the media may definitely hesitate to forecast who a winner is going to be um, in many states because they can um, process and and um, and tally or count but not tally all of the um, votes that have come in. We will have the results in many locations of, of vote by mail and absentee ballots, but the states that don't allow for that um, are big states, right? So Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin—they are allowing them to process a little bit in advance. But there will still be a lot of, of, of ballots outstanding on election night. So depending on how many voters have voted early, how many voters have returned their ballot, will really be determinative on how much we know um, when the polls close on November 3rd. 
And in terms of uh, everybody doing their part, and by the way, if you're just joining us, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're talking about voting today here on Driving Forces, and my guest is Tammy Patrick, a longtime expert on elections and senior advisor with Democracy Fund. And so, Tammy, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, we have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to squeeze in a couple more questions. Um, I've seen you on Twitter. Twitter using the hashtag leave nothing to chance when you talk about voting. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and, uh, you know, what message you're trying to get across as people are getting ready to engage here. I know I was trying to be provocative, so hopefully I was somewhat. Um, I guess it, provo- it provoked my question here on WBAI, so it worked. Yeah, good. Well, there you go. So my main concern here is that There is a lot that is yet to be determined in this moment. We are in a global pandemic. We don't know where or when or who is going to be affected by the next outbreak. Where is it going to blossom? Will it affect postal carrier workers? Will it affect election officials? Will it affect voters? Um, We don't know when the next weather event is going to happen. Um, And we are seeing more and more dramatic, severe weather events, particularly during the election season. So whether it's a fire or a tornado or multiple hurricanes um, coming to, you know, a swath of of area, um, we just don't know. Um, So what what I mean when I say leave nothing to chance is make a voting plan and have a backup plan as well. If your voting plan is to go to the polls and vote on November 3rd, you have no backup. Um, and so you really want to try and act early as, as much as you can to eliminate any of the influences that could be a problem in trying to exercise your right to vote. Um, for myself, I requested a ballot by mail. I got it two weeks ago. I've already voted. I turned it back in. It was received, and I'm done. Um, the closer you wait until a deadline to either request a ballot or to return a ballot, if there are any issues with your voter registration or your mailing address or you forget to sign it or you're not sure which polling place to go to, if you wait, it gives you less of an opportunity to make sure that your vote gets counted. So that's my real, um, my real message is take early action, make your plan, have a backup plan if you need it. But the majority of voters are not going to need a backup plan as long as they're acting early. Wonderful. And Tammy Patrick, where can people find out more about you and your work on voting and elections? Um, so I tweet way too much. You mentioned uh, my Twitter hand, uh, my Twitter account. So I, I tweet a lot about elections. Um, my handle is at A-Z, like Arizona, A-Z, Tammy, T-A-M-M-Y, P is in Patrick, so at AZ Tammy P. And also I am, um, as you mentioned, I work at Democracy Fund, so at democracyfund.org. And one last plug that I would make about finding out more additional information around elections and election administration is mm-hmm. to um, take a look at electionline.org, which is a daily composite of news from all around the country. It comes out about 6.30 in the morning, Eastern time, and you can see all of the news from around the country related to elections. Perfect. Thank you so much, Tammy Patrick. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us here on Driving Forces. Thank you so much. Be safe, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. I'm sitting in today for Jeff Simmons, your usual host here. We're talking about voting And uh, I always love to talk about voting, but what better than talking about voting on your birthday? And it is my birthday. So happy birthday to me. (laughs) The best way that you can actually wish me a happy birthday, to be totally honest with you, is to take a second, go to WBAI.org and pledge your support for commercial-free, listener-supported broadcasting. It's easy to become a WBAI buddy. And I make a recurring donation, the name of your favorite program. I'm sure it is Driving Forces. Jeff would be very happy to hear that. So again, just go to WBAI.org and click on Ways to Donate. Or you can even mail us a check, do it the old-fashioned way, WBAI 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. 
1-800-227-11217. And we've been around for more than 60 years at WBAI, bringing you uh, programming on news, politics, art, culture, music, justice issues that you care about, like voting. So please take a minute today. It would certainly make my birthday very happy. Go to WBAI.org and pledge your support in any amount you can. It helps. It helps keep free speech radio alive. So now we are going to move right along. I'm very excited about getting to talk about voting this much. Seriously, this is a very, very big uh, interest of mine as a reporter, and uh, I'm sure it is uh, for you, too. We know that people at WBAI care about democracy, care about justice issues. And so I'm happy to move on to our final guest this hour. And uh, this is another person who has helped us out with our book, which is uh, now out from Who, What, Why by me and Gabriella Novello. And it is called Is This Anyway? Way to vote vulnerable voting machines and the mysterious industry behind them. And so now I'm very happy to welcome to the program Marilyn Marks. She is executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance, and she's been a very big part of the fight for fair elections around the country. She did speak to us for the book, and she is with us now to speak on WBAI. So Marilyn, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Celeste, and happy birthday. Why, thank you. Why, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so maybe I, I did a very, very tiny thumbnail. Maybe take a, you know, one minute to explain to people, you know, um, why this is important to you and, um, you know, your work on elections and voting in the past. Why it's important to me. I was a um, corporate executive for way too many years. And I'll have to say I did not do my part for democracy. But my dad was a D-Day veteran. And I think about what he and his generation sacrificed for democracy. And he has has kind of been my inspiration for spending the last 11 years working in the trenches on trying to make voting a safer, more secure experience for voters uh, with a focus in not only the voting technology, trying to have secure elections, but also really we do a lot of work in the secret ballot and trying to protect voters' privacy. So those are two big areas of ours, and I've spent probably 95% of my time in the last three years in in Georgia, working Mm -hmm. on Georgia election problems, and I'm sure that your listeners are already familiar with the many problems always being reported out of Georgia. Oh, absolutely. I think that's something we've talked on, uh, talked about on the air here at WBAI. And, uh, certainly that's been something that's captured national attention just because the issues have, have been so severe. And I know that, um, you know, this is something that you've been watching closely. Uh, do you think things are getting any better in places like Georgia, in Georgia specifically? Or do you think that, uh, they really haven't learned from, from their past mistakes? They haven't learned from the past mistakes. But, Celeste, I will say they're about to get better. I'm optimistic, and one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because of programs like yours um, in the national press are now really shining a bright light on Georgia, and there's only so long that that uh, they can keep squirming without taking action. And so things are about to get better, I will, I will also say, that our three-year-old lawsuit, uh, we, we were able to get rid of the um, unaccountable, unauditable touchscreen machines. I'm sure you have written about those touchscreen machines. We were able to get rid of that through our lawsuit. Unfortunately, the state of Georgia picked the first cousins of those lawsuits, excuse me, of the touchscreens, and so we're still having to, to file, or not file, but we're still having to pursue our lawsuit against the first cousin, which is another touchscreen machine um, that they have have chosen instead. And um, we have a a court ruling as of Sunday night saying, look, it's too close to the election for us to wipe out all of Georgia's voting machines. However, they are not auditable. They are not accountable. They are not safe from a cybersecurity standpoint. And the court is warning the state, look, you better do something because another court ruling is probably coming at you before too long about the fact that you have chosen an expensive, complex, 
unaccountable voting system. Um, and so I think that, that the national attention and the court's attention is going to force change one way or another, Celeste. I think that that's uh, you make really great points. And if you're just joining us, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And we're talking to Marilyn Marks of the Coalition and for Good Governance about voting and about some of the problems we have seen in places like Georgia, but that are not necessarily uh, endemic only to Georgia. We have uh, problems in, in many states throughout the country. And um, before I move on to, to something else, I did want to stay on that for one second and ask you, you know, some of the things we saw in Georgia are, you know, kind of eye-opening to me. For example, um, something that we've seen in a few other states, Kansas, as I can recall, but, you know, you did have that situation in Georgia where the same person is running uh, for office. You know, in this case, it was uh, somebody who was running for governor who was also the chief administrator of the elections for the state. And, you know, is this something that you've seen um, as a problem? Is it sort of a a conflict or, you know, is there a way to, to do that fairly or is it is it just too close to uh, uh, to be reliable, to be trusted? Well, um, Celeste, I'm going to give you a contrarian answer on this. OK. Um, as much as I fought Brian Kemp, who is now the governor, who was the secretary of state and as many lawsuits as I filed against him, I will say that a um, secretary of state running for office whether it's a higher office or secretary of state's office, and running elections, or at least in name running elections, that's not actually a problem if done right. Because if elections are done right, somebody at a very senior level like that would be so far away from where the decisions need to be made, then he would have a very hard time manipulating the elections. But where... Georgia went wrong that made what you're suggesting a really bad problem in Georgia. And really, it shouldn't be a problem in, in, others, in most other states. But Georgia ceased to be a, a democratic jurisdiction, a democratic state, when in 2002, the Secretary of State's office was able to get the legislature to give all of the power of the people in terms of overseeing the conduct of their elections, concentrated it in one person's office. It was then concentrated in Kathy Cox, the Secretary of State, who was a Democrat. The Democrats actually made the move to concentrate all the power, take it away from the people. And while the Democrats did this, the Republicans came along and weaponized it. And... We are now in a situation in Georgia, and and I hope your listeners can think about some of these same trends are creeping through other states. And that is when you have too much technology, like touchscreen voting machines, which have to operate essentially in an unaccountable, unauditable black box, and you begin to take the ability of the a way of the people to monitor their own elections, to conduct their own elections, to make their own decisions as to what kind of voting equipment to have, then at that point you put too much power in one person's hands and you have lost the essential elements of democracy, which, if you think about it, mean we, the people, should be conducting our own elections, watching the vote count, controlling all of, of the actions that are going on through our oversight. In other words, we should be telling the government who got elected, not the government telling us. Georgia has gotten it totally backwards, but other states are, are on this slippery slope as well, doing too much technology with too little citizen oversight. I think that's a, a really interesting point. Now, I'm glad you brought it up because it sort of brings me to something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is that, you know, we hear a lot of rhetoric, uh, a lot of it coming, frankly, from the White House and from the president as he runs for reelection about how elections may be rigged, how the system is, is fixed. Uh, 
uh, against him uh, and that it shouldn't be trusted. And we also hear that about the news media. And, you know, you can take that for whatever you think it's worth, not telling you how to think about that. But in terms of people looking at this election and understanding that voting is is or should be the one true way that they can uh, express their feelings and express a preference for who their leaders are going to be in the direction of the country. You know, is there a concern uh, that you have about how people are sort of fielding that information or people who see anecdotal reports about something going wrong, ballots being thrown away or machines failing or people standing in long lines and getting discouraged? Um, in terms of your experience, I mean, do you ever worry that that casts doubt in some people's minds about the value and the reliability of voting, considering also what you've seen in Georgia? Um, yes, it does. It certainly does cast doubt. However, casting doubt when there are problems is not such a bad thing. What we need to be doing is being motivated to fix it. I mean, um, like, you know, we don't want to deny that there is coronavirus or deny that you need to be wearing a mask and taking all sorts of precautions, even though it's going to scare people, right? And it's, and when we talk about the realities of the disease, you know, yes, it's scary and, and, it, and, and it discourages us from, uh, from a lot of things that, that perhaps we even should do. But, but if we don't talk about it, if we don't tell the facts, then, then we're not ready to help remedy the problem, find solutions. And for every one of us who's worried or discouraged, we need to double our efforts to make sure that we are fulfilling our role as poll worker, poll watcher, help people get to the polls. There are things that every single one of us can do, particularly in the positive aspects of being a poll watcher, monitoring things that can really help to make the election process fair for everyone. There are very few people who are kind of interested in the details of getting trained to go in and say, watch absentee ballots being counted to make sure that ballots are not inappropriately rejected. Um, there's so much of that that the average citizen can do um, that can essentially re-energize our democracy and encourage those people who may be discouraged to get more involved and to make sure that the process is what it's supposed to be. And Marilyn Marks, in the uh, you know about 60 seconds that we have left, if that, just wanted to uh, ask you one more thing, which you touched on a little bit in our, our new book, uh, Is This Any Way to Vote?, which is just very, very briefly your advice for uh, how people can vote safely in a pandemic, you know, if they can get out and exercise their rights if they want to do it in person, um, but protect themselves as much as possible against coronavirus. Just uh, any tips that you might have? Oh. Um, yes, of course, we would suggest hand-marked paper ballots and, um, <laughs> in that, you know, not voting on a machine. And so I think for, for most people, that means voting an absentee mail ballot if they are eligible to do so. And my advice is that when they get that ballot, that they um, put it in a, after they vote it, put it in a drop box or take it to their election official's office. Be sure they are extremely careful with their signature because signatures are checked in most states and be sure to color in the, the bubble fully um, to be quite careful with that ballot since they will be leaving it off without the ability to have it checked on the spot. But that is, I think, the safest way to vote in most states. And um, if people want to vote in person in their polling place, I totally get that, but they just need to be sure and follow all of the orders on wearing masks and social distancing. Uh, which is sometimes hard to do in a polling place. Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, thank you so much for joining us to uh, talk about voting today on WBAI. Thank you, Celeste. And you are listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. I'm sitting in for Jeff Simmons, and we just have a few minutes to go. So 
I would like to thank you for spending this hour with me. I'd like to thank our guests. We had Gabriella Novello, uh, Tammy Patrick, and just now Marilyn Marks. And all of them played an important part in our new book, which I'll just remind you again is now out from Who, What, Why. It is called, Is This Any Way to Vote? Vulnerable Voting Machines and the Mysterious Industry Behind Them. And you can get a copy on Amazon or you can get it right on who, what, why. Dot org. So I'd like to thank all of our guests who helped us make that book and then make this program about it. Of course, I must always, always thank our, uh, our intrepid engineer, Reggie. He keeps the show going in these, uh, these tough times, these different times. This has been a, a very unique period in history to make radio and uh, he has kept it going and he's keeping us going today. So thank you, Reggie, for, uh, for being our guide, uh, on driving forces and beyond. So I just want to let you guys know it's actually been really, really a great pleasure for uh, for me to spend this hour with you on WBAI. It is my birthday. Cannot think of a better way to spend it. And, um, you know, talking about voting, talking with you, BAI listeners, uh, people of New York and beyond. Quick reminder, can't help but make that pitch. You can go to WBAI.org and you can support us in terms of the work that we do here. Free Speech Radio you can just click ways to donate and uh, we will appreciate your help in any amount. WBAI.org. This program will be up on WBAI.org uh, in the archives section. Just click on archives and driving forces. We'll also share it on SoundCloud and you can check us out on Twitter and Facebook. So for WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz Marston. Jeff Simmons, your regular host here on Driving Forces, will be back with you soon. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to vote. You're tuned to listener-sponsored WBAI New York. The deadline to fill out the U.S. Census has been abruptly cut short. Originally, New Yorkers had until the end of October, but a new Supreme Court decision allowed the Trump administration to end the census count by Friday morning. So far, 61.5% of New Yorkers have been counted. It's about five points behind the national average. Please go to 2020census.gov to fill out your census. The questionnaire only takes about 10 minutes to complete. The census only comes once a decade. It determines how many congressional seats each state gets, as well as how $1.5 trillion in federal spending is distributed. It determines funding for things like schools, hospitals, and senior programs. Again, the deadline for the U.S. Census has been abruptly cut short by the Trump administration. You have until Friday morning at 6 a.m. to fill out the census. Please go to 2020census.gov to fill out your census. Everyone should be counted, all children, babies, everyone, documented, undocumented, anyone and everyone should be counted in the census. It's really important for New York. Thank you. Hello, WBAI listeners. The WBAI Community Advisory Board is held on the third Sunday of every month at 1 p.m. So it's happening on October 18th. The cab will meet by teleconferencing calling. The call-in number is 623-600-3766. 623-600-3766. The access number is 963003-963003. Everyone is welcome to call in. The CAB, the Community Advisory Board, is a vehicle for you, our listeners, to effectively provide input to the WBAI Local Station Board. Again, that's the WBAI Community Advisory Board meeting. It's open to the public. It's at 1 p.m. on October 18th. We will post these phone numbers so that you can access the meeting on our website, wbai.org. And you're welcome to join in. 
This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled, free speech radio, WBAI New York at 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. This Thursday, October 15th at 10 p.m. for the third and final volume of the Anthology of American Folk Music, which when it was released on LP Records in 1952, introduced a new generation to long-forgotten recordings made between the mid-1920s and the early 1930s, and it helped to stimulate the folk revival of the 50s and 60s. We'll hear Clarence Ashley, Cannon's Jug Stompers, Doc Boggs, the Memphis Jug Band, the Carter Family, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Sleepy John Estes, Yank Rachel, Uncle Dave Macon, Mississippi John Hurt, and many more. It's Folk Radio, Thursday at 10 p.m. on WBAI and WBAI.org. Next game. 